Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Jimmy Henning. He's a forage specialist at the University of Kentucky. Good morning, Dr. Henning. Good morning, Dr. Lynn Cooler. Tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you got interested in thinking about grass. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. Uh, I, I knew in college I, I was not destined to be an English major. So, so we could eliminate, you know, sort of the liberal arts side of the university. Uh, but actually, my, my dad was in extension, and that was uh, what I wanted to do. Uh, and, and, I, and the funny thing is, is you know, I kind of backed into the, to the, the grass world. Uh, I think probably, Jeff, if I'd have been, a, been good in animal science, I'd, I'd have done that. Uh, you know, you guys in the, in the beef world, you see things in cattle that, that I wasn't ever going to see, you know, you can. And so I knew that I wanted to be around livestock, but uh, that wasn't the way I was going to get in the door. So, uh, you know, the, then the, the grass side intrigued me actually. Uh, how do you keep it growing? How do you, how do you take care of that? And my first job actually was, uh, making 50 cents an hour on a hay crew. Oh, uh, yep. Yeah. So riding, riding the wagon behind the baler, you know, and stacking and, and uh, that was that was that was those were some fun summers, uh, some hard work, you know, but fun. You know, I, I never enjoyed those days. I used to do that as well. And I'll, I'll never uh, forget the times when uh, y- y- you hear the discussion. Well, we need to go get some bags of salt because <laughs> then you knew the bales were wet and they were going to be heavy and you were going to earn your 25 to 50 cents a bale. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Not sure the salt did a whole lot of good for keeping the quality of the hay, but um, it probably saved a couple of barns. Yes, maybe. I think so. I think so. But uh, today I thought what we could do is, you know, this winter and, and actually it's been a maybe a trend that we've seen for a few years that we get a lot of calls, a lot of emails uh, from our colleagues out in the counties, as well as producers, wanting us to look at some reports that they get or ask us questions about some uh, silage or fermented forages that they uh, get back in and say, you know, is it safe to feed or is this good or, you know, can I feed it to this type of species and that. And so I, I know that you've been working for um, uh close to two years now probably on on this and i thought it'd be a good time since we're here in early spring and and folks will begin thinking about uh, putting some forage down to uh, to make baleage or or silage out of that we kind of do a little review so um, maybe we could talk about this whole idea of preserving a forage to feed later on um, through the fermentation process and just you know, real briefly, kind of that mile high approach. Talk, talk to us a little bit how forages are fermented. The, well, you know, 
we have we would like to graze all the all year if we could, but that that just doesn't happen. Um, so we got to store it somehow. Got to preserve it somehow. Uh, hay, of course, we preserve it because we get it dry enough that it's stable in storage and and uh, will you know will be in good shape when we get ready ready to feed it. Uh, a lot of our for, you know, the big part of our yield here in Kentucky comes from first cutting. Uh, and the first cutting comes off when it's still, you know, the ground still got moisture in it and we've got more rain. So, you know, one of the techniques that have really, that has really helped us a lot is the ability to make fermented uh, bales, you know, bale it up wet and let it ferment. And, and bales ferment because they've got sugar in it and uh, when we take away the oxygen in a bale by wrapping it in plastic, uh, that sugar will actually create, the, uh, go through a, a cascading you know, process with bacteria and such, but it will, uh, it'll create lactic acid, drop the pH in the bale, and, and it will then be stable in storage. So it's, it's really a help to us, a pretty simple process, even though there's a lot of chemistry going on behind the scenes that you, know, you can't see. But, sure. Uh, it, it works well. So essentially we're quote unquote pickling the hay. I was thinking of that word. Yeah, exactly right. We're pickling it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that, you know, the, the advent of, of making silage out of forages gives us um, a little bit of an advantage or uh, an opportunity here in the springtime, but the, the difference or, or what is that opportunity when we're thinking about trying to make it as dry hay versus trying to get it up as wet hay? Well, a lot, a lot of the times, you know, we just don't have the, the curing days that we need to get dry hay. Uh, and it's not your imagination. I mean, last year, uh, one of our really good haymakers said he only had half the number of what he calls baling days. So, you know, there are times in the spring when we need to, when we need to cut on time uh, that the rain, the weather is just uh, too unstable or we only get a couple of sunny days in a row. Uh, and being able to to cut the forage at the right stage and then and roll it up when it's still moist uh, and preserve it is really quite uh, a help to us to to create high quality feed. We are we are blessed to be in an area that gets fifty to seventy inches of rain a year or precipitation, but yet it can also be quite challenging when it comes to the agronomic work of making hay or planting grains and that too. It really does. And uh, it's nice to have an option because there's just too many jobs to do on the farm to, you know, you, you, we people, people, I think, Jeff, when we talk to them about cutting things on time, uh, they when they don't do it, they they feel like maybe there's, they're, they're doing something wrong. It's like, no, it's not written down anywhere that this has that this works right every year. Uh, you know, we just need a few things, a few techniques like Baylage to to let us have a, a bit of a management option in some of these rainy springs. That's a good point. So, so making silage or fermented forages from um, um, anything that we would cut down in the spring is, is nothing new per se. We've been doing this for a long time. So what, what are some of the more traditional methods of preserving forage that is put up? You know, when we had a whole lot more dairies than we do now, uh, it would be just uh, very common for uh, 
dairymen to cut down forage, wilt it a little bit, then chop it, uh, and either blow it into an upright silo or they would move it to a, a bunker, you know, and pack it down and cover it with plastic uh, and then seal it up and, and then feed it out later in the season or in the winter. Uh, the, you know, the, and, but that required those choppers. Uh, and that chopped forage is easier to ensile than our long forage that we're trying to ensile in, in the bales now. But, uh, you know, it, it can be done in bales, but the traditional way is to wilt it and chop it. And, and the, the reason that it's a little bit easier for it to ferment is, is because um, we're allowing some of those microbes that are on the outside of the forge to get access to those sugars that are on the inside of the sails, right? Exactly right. Yeah, you've, you're making a bit more, you're mixing it up and, and you just got an easier time for uh, that fermentation to take, to take place. And then as, as you mentioned, some of the, the maybe obstacles or uh, downfalls of the traditional method is, is we've got a tractor pulling a chopper and a wagon behind it. And then we've got to take that wagon to either the upright silo or, or haul it to that forge to the, the pit. And then we've got to pack it in the pit or we've got to blow it back up in the silo. So there's a lot of equipment and people that are needed to run that equipment to, to get it into its quote unquote storage area. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, and you know, we, well, it just does take a lot of equipment and people and we don't have that much on our small farms. And the other thing uh, when I was in Wisconsin is uh, the trend was for dairies to, to increase in size and, and numbers. And one of the challenges with upright storage was the time to unload to feed because you're, you're milking the, an increased number of cows. It takes more time to, to do the milking. And then that reduces the time for the other chores like feeding and scraping and those things. So the, the, uh, horizontal or flat storage going into the pits or the bunkers became more attractive because it was quicker to fill and quicker to feed out of. So for our smaller producers, um, you know, in, in Kentucky, we, you know, I think we still say our average beef herd is um, about 30 uh, cows. Baleage provides us a little different opportunity uh, because of the equipment that's used. But, um, Kind of walk us through a little bit of what kind of equipment might be used to make baleage. Sure. And, you know, I think we got into baleage <clears throat> in the first place because we could typically use the same equipment that they already had on hand to make hay. So the, you know, the mowers all work just fine uh, for that purpose. Rakes will too. There's probably a, a dimension of, of rakes that has changed a little bit. We need a bit heavier rake. Uh, to be able to handle some of the heavier, you know, wetter crops, because we're going to be raking it and manipulating it when it's wetter. Probably the largest difference is uh, that balers need to be heavier duty, and they, they typically need to, to be adapted with uh, either, uh, you know, manufactured as silage type balers uh, or uh, after the fact modified so that it can handle that wet forage and uh, it's it's has to do with the, the way the forage is moving around inside the baler and you know so those are those are heavier uh, typically it, uh, in the the work that we did the survey uh, producers you know most of them were using some sort of baler 
that had that was either you know straight out a silage type or modified to do a good job with wet material. Um, and then after that, you know, you got to have the wrapper of some kind, you know, an individual bale wrapper or an inline. And and you mentioned that heavier duty baler. So like a uh, let's just use an example of a four by five grass bale um, may weigh seven hundred to eight hundred pounds. But contrast that to a, a wet bale that's made for baleage. What kind of weights are we looking at there? About double about 1500 pounds and it's not you know some of the larger bales it is not hard at all though to get them up to a ton yeah so equipment safety and and handling safety all those things are important to consider them when we move to those you know and i read something the other day even the the the, your type of bale fork uh if you've got a the bale forks that come in and and like two prongs that go in the below the center of gravity of the bale and you're moving it to where you're going to wrap it that way, then you don't, uh, and then the bale is compressing itself still. You don't introduce a, maybe air into into that bale. Uh, and I'd never thought about that, you know. So even the type of bale prong where you're, where you're sticking it in the bale matters, can help, can help you or uh, hinder you uh, in the ensiling. That's a great point and, and a great lead in to this, kind of thoughts or or keys on what is needed to get a good fermentation in these bales. You mentioned that it's an anaerobic process and that the the bacteria are going to chew up those sugars and and make lactic acid. But what are some of the keys to getting this forge to ferment and ferment well? Well, you you have to start off, excuse me, you have to start off with um, sugar in the first place. And well, in our forage crops, a lot of our carbs are in the fiber, and fiber is not going to ferment well. So we need to cut the forage at a relatively immature stage. So that means, you know, for some crops like cereal rye, which which matures so fast, uh, you know, you've almost got to catch it before the heads come out in order to have the sugar you need to ferment. Uh, so we want to to cut it at that. Uh, for most forages, that transition from vegetative to reproductive. So for grasses, it's just as the head is beginning to emerge. For our legumes, it's when we're starting, when you when they're in the bud stage or you're starting to see some bloom, uh, you know, then they're going to have the, the carbohydrates that are needed to uh, ferment. And as, as we've talked about before, the, the carbs are on the inside of the cell and the bacteria typically are, are, are always or on the outside. And so we it's we kind of have to have an excess of carbs to ferment well. And that's why we have to shade this, the maturity of the cutting to the immature. And then the moisture content, how, how important is moisture? Well, you know, it's it really, as, as we found out with uh, some of the survey work that we did, it, it really is crucial. And, and, you know, that's, that's not a mystery. You can, you can read, uh, I'm sure, textbooks that are 100 years old that would say wilt the forage to, you know, a moisture content, say 50% or something like that. Uh, but what we found out was is that that's it's very hard to hit in the field. Now, our the textbook is going to say, um, you know, moisture contents from 40% moisture to 60% is the range, right? Um, but we found that, you know, we would have silage above 70% in some bales that we were testing and some that were below 30%. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, we had more bales outside of the range, outside of the right range, than we did in the range. Uh, so moisture content uh, coupled with the fermentation or the sugars, you know, is, uh, well, really, if, when we looked at all the data, the moisture content, the better we did hitting the moisture content, let me say it this way, the better we did hitting the right moisture content, the better the fermentation, the better the lactic acid generation, the lower the pH. So what would be, I mean, we, we talk about that. Um, um, what would be some of the challenges on hitting that mark? I mean, we, we, we think about it. Is it, is it because of um, dew on the forge? Is it because uh, we're trying to do too many acres and we start at nine in the morning and don't finish up till five at night? Or what are some of the factors that may cause that moisture to vary? Like um, what you saw and that being outside those windows. You know, I, I really think that, that it is that it gets away from us. I think we we saw a lot on the dry side, frankly, 50% moisture or less, and a whole bunch of that. Um, and I think that people are surprised that it dries as fast as it does. Um, there are there are times on the upper end, you know, that that it's it's just super wet. You've got those three or four misty days in a row. Uh, the ground is saturated with water, and and I had there was one producer that I know well. Uh, making rye silage and he cut it right and but it was still 70 percent moisture when he when he bailed it but it'd been there for four days so the challenge i mean the the difficult thing is is it make it right in one day and it may take and in that case four and it still was wet uh and so it's 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 not something that i think i have a great handle on because I know academically that it's probably going to take two days in the spring. You know, the second day is it's right. Um, but if we if we have uh, maybe, well, I'm thinking wheat now. If we let it get into the head stage and you've got something that starts out a little more dry. Uh, also, that with the, the more mature that stem gets, it's harder to get that bale dense. You've got more air in it. Uh, you know, you've got less carbs the more mature it gets. Less, less sure. Uh, so, water soluble carbs uh and then you know you've got a couple of things working against you but but right off the bat is that moisture content that is is difficult to do and frankly i'm going to go out this spring with a, a a young producer and you know just try to experience it myself because it's, it's one thing to just say what the moisture content is but being able to say that what are the signs that you look for uh, you know, there are the things like, you know, wringing the forage with your hands and can you, can you show some water whenever in that, you know, where you're at that junction where it's twisting, uh, you know, that's an indication that it's too wet, but what are, what are others? And, uh, that's what I, I hope to do. That, that was a great lead in because we have technology advances. Um, it's just amazing. And, and do we not have some pieces of equipment that we could measure moisture of this forage? And, and if we do, kind of what are they? But then what are the what are the limitations of getting them out in the field and getting folks using them? Well, we do. We've got, uh, and I think it's getting, the technology is getting better and better. So we've got those options. Uh, you know, you can go back to the things that we did whenever I was a graduate student and you know, go out in the windrow, chop it up, put it in a little basket, and put it over a, a forced air dryer heater thing, 
uh, and weigh it until it gets, you know, dry. Uh, it takes about 30 minutes or so. Uh, but, you know, by that time, the moisture content's changed in the field and you've only done one little part. Um, the, you know, microwaves work, they're faster. And, you know, but again, that's that's a challenge when you're in the field, not in the kitchen. Uh, but uh, we have moisture meters that are getting better and better all the time. In fact, I, um, there are type, you know, types that measure the windrow moisture and there are types that measure the bale moisture. Uh, and I've got more experience, uh, mainly just in the last year or two with the, the bale moisture testers, uh, but we're gonna do more with the windrow testers. And you've got the, the, in, the in the chamber moisture, moisture sensors, which are awfully good, but, but obviously at that point in time, you've started to make bales. So it'd be, it'd be really helpful if you know you were kind of close to right before you started doing that. And, and it may be that we need to, as with many other things, take multiple tools and put them together. And, and what we may do is do a, a windrow meter test and then bale a couple bales. And if you have a, a, a moisture meter on your baler in the chamber, um, you could use it, but if not, maybe you have a, a probe meter that um, we could go and probe a couple of those bales and see where they're at. Because in my experience with the windrow ones, it's very um, sensitive to the density of that forge being around that that probe. It really is. The one that we tested a little bit last year, uh, you well they said you know well they, they told you how to do it stuff it in the bucket and, and press down with about 40 pounds of pressure well the only way to make sure you're doing that is to get out there with a big scale battery powered which is not you know uh, common uh well outside of your bathroom maybe possibly but, <laughs> um you know and then then you got to get that right and so it's you know it, the it is density driven uh and so i Again, it's, it's something that we still need to, to get out there and, and to try to use the tools to find out which ones are really going to help us. And we talk all about this on trying to get it to ferment well. What are some of the downsides of a bad fermentation? Um, what are some of the risks associated with a bad fermentation if this hay doesn't pickle? You know, it, it, it the risks run, as you know, from you know just having feed that's not going to be so not going to be very palatable uh and the intake is down to actually feed that can kill livestock uh and and of course we're talking about botulism there but nearly all of that bad fermentation uh when we have bad secondary or secondary fermentation is a clostridial event usually uh and we have to realize that clostridia get into a bale uh, because of either dirt or manure or a dead animal. And, and obviously the dead animal is not something that you can really predict, uh, you know, and, and it's just in one local, one localized place. But <clears throat> dirt, a lot of times we, we introduce by the way we rake or uh, if uh, in, in the case that I worked with, uh, you're aware of where we had somebody made some summer annual um, baleage and they were cutting it in september and it was dry uh and it was they it must have been a dust storm when they bailed it uh, because we had you know twice the amount of ash or even three times what we should have had uh, in that bale uh, and so we had a load of bacteria and you, 
you know, that, that's the first thing. You got to have the bacteria there and they're in the environment. But if we've got the, you know, we haven't moved a lot of dirt into that bale or uh, don't have, say we spread manure t too soon before baling, then we don't have excessive numbers. Um, but the other thing that has to happen is uh, it has to be super wet. And those, so the bale will start, will ferment, and it will typically go through the right phase and it'll, it'll make lactic acid. The pH will drop some, uh, but then you get the secondary fermentation by the clostridial bacteria uh, who then you know, will work on proteins, it'll work on the lactic acid and it'll create ammonia and it will, in some cases, create the botulinum toxin. And, and you know, that we talked a little bit there about dry cases and another, another um, case study that we had was on the opposite end. Somebody was trying to make some cereal grain forage early in the spring and it was, the, the ground was saturated and you, you know, the individual said, yeah, the mud was coming up on the tires of the baler and I know I probably got more soil uh, contact when I was trying to rake it as well. And that forage laid down on that wet ground more. So they were aggressive trying to pull that heavy stuff up. And uh, so in that situation, it was more of a case of being too wet, trying to do that field work. Yes. We're trying to get in there working around the rain events and that, but you know, you also have to be careful on this technology of field conditions and, and getting contamination from soil soil yeah yes and you know and we we focus on the the train wrecks you know because it, i guess you don't want to have one right but uh they are awfully rare uh and and typically you know we've got a lot of warning signs for example i and and all the bales that had high oh butyric acid we haven't talked about that as a marker at all uh, but that's a that's a normal thing to test for with the fermentation panel. Uh, and if somebody's getting into baleage, I would strongly suggest that they they test enough of their bales, uh, you know, their lots of baleage uh, for the fermentation patterns so that they know, you know, what was the pH? How well did I do making lactic acid? How well is the moisture range or did I hit it? Uh, and then if you do get that bale or a lot of, of, of forage that has a lot of butyric acid, that's a signal that you've had clostridial fermentation. Um, but back to the signs of, you know, how do you know that you may have a problem? Uh, if the bales squat a lot, <laughs> then, then typically, you know, something is not right and you need to explore that further. Uh, most of the lots of baleage where we had real problems with butyric acid, we had effluent, we had liquid leaking out of the bottom of the bales, and it and it does not smell good, you know. So you your nose can tell you. You take a core sample of good baleage or at least decent baleage, and it's going to have a sweet uh, smell that's unique to silage. I think. Um, I don't think my nose is calibrated for lactic acid content. But I think I can recognize the difference between butyric acid and, and lactic and, and or acetic and so on. Uh, so, you know, the smell will tell you a lot. Uh, and, and Jeff, uh, frankly, some of the times when we really had a bad problem and it, I think it had to do with not enough plastic, uh, the bales actually were lost their density. I mean, they, mm -hmm. were, they were so loose that I know that they couldn't have been baled that way. And that means that 
you know, the whole system broke down and you it got hot or something. Uh, and it, you know, it's just a bale that doesn't need to get fed. That's a good point. And, you know, that, that if, if there's any suspicion of a bale being bad, you're better off not to feed it and to move on to something else to feed. Yes, that is exactly right. Uh, you know, one of the ways we can try to ensure that we have some, uh, well, ensure, I use the word twice in a sentence, but we, we need some insurance that, that uh, against some of these uh, negative happenings, using enough plastic is one way to do that. We know that if on the minimum four layers of this stretch wrap UV treated uh, plastic is enough, but most producers, in fact, we recommend using, excuse me, six layers, uh, just as insurance against uh, stems poking either out of the forage through the plastic or, or uh, from the ground where you're going to put this bale. Well, that's another uh, good point. And, and you talked about the layers, you know, six, six layers of plastic, but there's also a time frame from when that bale is made to when we should get it wrapped as well. And so what's kind of the discussion now as far as how long from the time that that bale is kicked out of the baler to when it gets wrapped? The, the research shows us that we need to have it done within 24 hours after baling, wrapped within 24 hours after baling. Um, and so, you know, you, you typically then it's knowing how, you know, cutting down only what you know you can bale and wrap in a day. Uh, and that's uh, one of the techniques that people will need to learn. And sometimes the hard way, you know, when they have to bale up and or wrap into the wee hours of the morning, they will, they'll remember that next time. But uh, the, the, if we bale up the, the bale, make it, wrap it up, roll it up, uh, and it's wet and it has to stay uh, particularly 36 hours uh, without wrapping, then, then it's going to start heating as if just like a wet bale of hay will heat. Uh, and it will chew up carbohydrates uh, and, you know, make it hard. It will have, then, then we got less to ferment in that bale. And, and heat is, is not a good thing for uh, the nutrition value of that bale. And so in there, we're dealing with an aerobic process of breaking yes. those sugars down, not an anaerobic process that the, the secondary metabolites are going to be our preserving acids that we're going for. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So it, it may also, I, I try to tell people, you know, if, if you're going to be making baleage and, and in a lot of situations in my experience, Jimmy, is it's not necessarily ideal situations, textbook situations. And, and especially if we're dealing with some cereal grains where you mentioned they get a little more mature, there's more airspace in that stem and there's more potential for oxygen to remain in the bale. They may not be able to get that bale as dense as they'd like and squeeze a lot of that oxygen out of those stems that, that I get a little concerned of saying, yeah, you're safe to go 24 hours. I would much rather see those bales wrap, say 12 hours or less. Yeah. And I've got no problem with that. You know, you, you don't want to, this is probably a case where the, the errors compound, you know, if the more things you can do right, the less risk you have. Yep. Yep. And when we're dealing with situations, the forage is a little over mature. We don't have as many water soluble carbohydrates as we should. 
you just have to do all those extra steps right to to try and increase your odds of a good fermentation. You know, we haven't we talked a little bit about balers, but there are some balers that have the uh, cutting knives uh, in there, uh, and they actually do help us in terms of getting a denser bale. That's a that's easily proven and 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 very true, uh, and the. And we think, I mean, I think the, the, the data is a little not so straightforward, but we think that it does help mix that, uh, you know, the, the sugar content of the cell with the external bacteria so that we get an easier ferment. Uh, and now I, I will leave the, what do you do with that bale when you try to feed it to, to you guys? Because it's going to come apart like a bunch of, like a bunch of toothpicks, you know, when you take the net wrap off of there. That's that's a good point, but but the the difference of maybe having a good fermentation and a good bale to feed beats the other end of that, where you have a bale that didn't go through a good fermentation and you've got to compost it. Exactly right, exactly right, and that's a that's a good point too. That you know, if uh, you have to be a little bit conservative, if you're looking at uh, you're you're at the point of feed out, and as you and I have talked about, you've got to Maybe there's a place where the plastic, the bales were not the right, the same size, and they stressed a lot, you know, from between each other in these inline situations, uh, and it just doesn't look right. Then it's better to leave that one out and put it in in the compost pile than to try to feed that to something. Yep, and and you know we we don't we don't see this because um, it's happening underneath, but there are a lot of times where we'll get rodents that will dig underneath the bales and cause oxygen to get in between two bales. And, and again, if it looks suspicious, I always tell them just it, it's two bales, just get rid of those two bales. Don't take the risk. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and, and we haven't really talked about that, the, the, the plastic very much, uh, but, you know, patching the plastic is really crucial, uh, especially holes that appear soon after you bail. Uh, after you've, you know, it's, it's ensiled and that takes about a month or six weeks or so, depending on the temperature and how much sugar you have. Uh, but, you know, after it's ensiled, then you get a bit of safety that, that the damage is only going to be localized at the, at the point of the hole. Uh, but if you get one that's, that's early in, in the process, then that region of that bale is is aerobic, uh, and and nothing good happens in a bale of silage that goes aerobic. Let me tell you, uh, it either gets hot, really hot, uh, and it becomes it looks like charcoal on the outside, uh, or you in the worst case scenario, there's enough air that gets in to keep it from fermenting, but not enough that that keeps clostridial from from growing, and that that's the the worst situation I ever got into. Uh, in the last few years, anyway, where you had somebody with a big hole uh, in the in the in the line of bales, uh, and then that didn't ferment, and that was where the you know the problem originated in uh, that lot of silage, and they lost lost some cows. So we we talked about um, a lot of the signs of of good fermentation being looks smells. Um, if we if we pulled samples and we sent them off to a commercial laboratory, um, what are some of the things that we would be looking at or requesting to get back 
to know if we had a good fermentation? You know, you're gonna you're gonna want to specifically ask for a fermentation panel. Um, and the other thing that I that that we have to ask for to get this is 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 an assay to, to find out about the ash content, because uh, and and the way that we've done a lot of hours, you've got to ask for a forage test, traditional forage test, and the fermentation panel to get both. You can specify just you know give me the mineral content of the forage. But we want to, you know, it's really crucial to get that fermentation panel because that's going to tell us the pH. It's going to tell us, you know, how much lactic acid, how much acetic acid, propionic acid, how much, and in particular, how much butyric acid that is present. Uh, and most of the labs give you a nice comparison. You know, how does your bale look against the average bale and the ranges that that you should expect? And that's that's very helpful uh, in, in interpretation. And there's one more number that, that I key in on on these assays, and that's the percent of nitrogen as ammonia. We, you know, it should be less than 15%. It, it's normal to have some ammonia uh, generated from the protein in the bale during the ensiling process. But if the, that, uh, the percent of nitrogen as ammonia is more than 15%, then that's an awfully good indication you've had clostridial fermentation. So what about some other benchmarks? You mentioned pH as an example. What, what kind of range on pH might we expect? You know, that's a really good question because the, uh, you'll read everywhere that the pH needs to be five or below. Uh, and yes, I'd love it to be five or below for forage crops, but you and I know that the majority of baleage that we see doesn't have a pH. If it hits five, it's 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 well not rare, but it's it's not as common as we'd like. So you know the pH does need to get close to five. Um, and that this that was one of the things that just baffled me at this at the start of this project. And, and you know we talked about it, uh, stood in your office and talked about it and said. We got to. I got to figure out why it is that we test. We tell people, you know, that if it doesn't make pH five, that it could be a problem. And we got baleage everywhere that doesn't have pH of, of five. Uh, and and what what you knew and what I found out was that that the moisture content interacts with you know the safe pH range. So uh, you know, we'll our grasses do need to get close to five, and if we've got moisture that's say around 60% moisture, then most often we do hit about five. Uh, legumes can be a little bit higher um, at the same moisture content because they've got a lot of protein that buffers the pH change. So if we have, you know, pHs in the low fives, then, you know, we're, we're you know, we're okay. But, you know, that's, this, that's the case that I feel like you've got to look at the whole spectrum there of information say, okay, my pH didn't quite get where it needs to be. What are, what are the other markers telling me? You know, how much ash do I have? How much ammonia do I have? And do I have a lot of butyric acid? And without some of those other negative markers, then, you know, you can say, okay, well, I don't have a low pH. That just tells me it, it may not be very stable once I take the plastic off. Uh, at, at least that's what I think it tells me. In, in regards to the, the acids, um, we talked about lactic and we talked about um, butyric and acetic. So just 
what what should be the dominant acid in a good fermentation? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, lactic acid should be the dominant one. Uh, we should have almost no butyric and almost no propionic. And we shouldn't have more than half of the, we, the, the acetic should be about half or less of the lactic. Uh, and, and, and frankly, a, a very high acetic acid number is an indication that you've had some sort of a, a negative fermentation event too. So we, you know, the number that we shoot for with lactic acid is 3% of the dry matter weight, a dry weight of the bale. Uh, and again, you know, the drier we get, the harder it is to hit that number. Yeah, that's a good point. So the fermentation profiles are important to, to get. And, and I am 100% behind your recommendation that if you're getting into this, it is good insurance and, and peace of mind to get that fermentation profiles because you get such viable information. You're going to get your pH and if pH is around that 5.3 to 5.5 range, then we say, well, we need to dial in and look at those acid levels and see if there was a good fermentation. And if acetic is not too high and there's no butyric, then that gives us a little bit more confidence. And then we can look at your ammonia and, and see what those levels look like. So that it, it's a very good investment, in my opinion, on that. Um but when we start looking at at this, and, and you mentioned it, that you saw a lot of range. And, and so you spent some time going out on farms, doing some sampling and that. And let's dive into kind of that process and, and what you did and what you kind of found on farms. Well, we, um, we found, well, what I saw was that the dominant type of baleage was, is the inline wrapper. Uh, now, I, when I went into the project, I thought I was only going to see inline wraps. Uh, but in, but frankly, there are some places, northern Kentucky is one of them, where the, it, it's just everybody has an individual wrapper. So we saw, you know, those two things. Uh, that's not the only systems. Those are not the only two systems out there, but they're the dominant ones. Um, we uh, What we did was we just identified the producers that had baleage and and we went out and sampled those. We uh, sampled it uh, at least five bales, two cores per bale, uh, patched those up with uh, the tape that's made for that purpose, uh, and then sent them off for analysis. We, into the project of a ways, we re I realized it might be useful to find out uh, are there commonalities with their equipment or you know, how long they let it wilt in the field um, and, you know, we, well, what we found was, is that some producers are just really good at it and I haven't figured out exactly why, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, one of the things I do know, because you, you, you're pressing that, that probe into a lot of bales, some bales are just tighter than others. Uh, and, and, uh, well, in Northern Kentucky, Jeff, uh, I burned down six rechargeable batteries just just trying to get through all of the bales that we tested that day wow that that that's some tight bales absolutely you know? so you know you found that there's uh, some variation there uh but uh we found that we couldn't really send test out or a lot of the theories like oh, okay i gotta have a, a a conditioning mower you know uh it helps in some cases but it wasn't necessary 
most people had wheel rakes. Uh, we didn't have very many with the rotating basket rake type that you that we don't we don't see those very commonly anymore. Um, trying to think of some other things. Oh uh, well, again, most most commonly people had inline wraps or inline situations. Uh, some that were the individual bales. But one thing we that I did see, and then that I, I'm not exactly sure how to coach people through this, and that is uneven sized bales. In the inline wrapped bales, you've got to be on your A game when you wrap it up. It needs to be square, flat across the top. It doesn't need to be rounded, uh, and they need to be the same size. And when you put them together in that wrapper, uh, they need to be tight because if they are loose, uh, or uh, you know anything happens that those bales don't don't butt up against each other very tightly, then you will see typically white mold along those edges. So um, when you went back and started getting the lab results back, what were some of the relationships that you begin to see in regards to the results? Oh man, I'll I'll tell you the. The aha moment was when we plotted lactic acid concentrations against moisture content. Oh my goodness! You know, uh, an R square a correlation of of eighty percent is just unheard of in in the real world, and we were in the nineties. Wow! So you know, it, it 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 was apparent even to this agronomist that that if you get the moisture content right, you know, we were getting most. I guess what that says is you're getting most of the other things right. And the moisture content was the thing that made the difference. And so the the higher the moisture content, what happened? Yeah, the uh, if we're if say so you look at the range 40 to 60, and you look at lactic acid over that range. So it, at 40%, lactic acid is awfully low, but the closer you got to 60, the closer we got to 3% uh, lactic acid concentration. So, you know. It, it said that most people could tend, if they could push it towards the wetter end, would do a better job uh, in terms of creating lactic acid in that bale. And and those things are important because it makes us change maybe our management approach. It maybe makes us limit the amount of hay that we're going to lay down so that we can get it baled and get it wrapped at the right moisture content. And it may mean that we have to expand the amount of days that we're doing this process rather than trying to get it all done in one day and move on to the next. Well, no, I think it moves it up, moves up, moves bailing up the priority list of all the jobs you got to get done that day. You know, it really can't wait. It's got to be wrapped. You know, it's in, in the summertime, you're only talking two hours before it's time to go. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it is something you learn over time, and it's, and it's why it's so important to get that test, to, to keep an eye, you know, have some sort of a record or an idea of how long did I wait? Uh, how long, what was that wilting time uh, on that? We, we talked about butyric, and in, in your field study, were you able to find any relationships with lab results and butyric levels at all? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, you know, it it on we had almost no butyric acid if we kept the moisture contents even less than 70 percent uh that varied year to year some uh, the second year we had a few more samples between 60 and 70 that had i will say low levels of butyric not not you know 
really super problematic levels of butyric. But once you hit 70% moisture, you could almost guarantee that you were going to have one, two, and we had one case that had 6% butyric acid, which when I got that back, I saw that and I called the agent. I said, you cannot feed this, you know, and he said, okay, sorry, it was already fed. You know, wow. So, you know, that guy, that guy dodged a bullet. I'm, you know, it, it was, it was really bad and he should have, it should have been one of those bales that you, you kind of know that it's not great. Uh, so that's not going into the $10,000 ever. You know, <laughs> that, that one is, uh, that one goes someplace else. That's absolutely right. That, I've never seen one that high. You know, I, I begin to get concerned from an intake standpoint. Butyric acid is a very putrid, rotten baby diaper type of smell almost. And when we begin seeing butyric levels get up close to even, say, one, one and a half percent, we can see impacts on intake. Cattle just don't want to consume it. So I can't imagine how he got the cattle even to eat it. He must have had some sweetness on it, uh, good aromas to cover it up. Well, they they might have they must have you know just tore the bale apart and laid down in it, and he felt sorry and bought him something else. <laughs> uh, thank, thankfully, they had they were had discriminating palates and hopefully didn't eat it. So, so are there any other key things that um, you took away from from your baleage work? You know, the, the last thing I would add is that uh, we do see some white mold on the exterior of bales. Uh, and we've tried to actually plate that out and figure out what it is. And, and you can certainly look up and see what, you know, what, might, what it might be. But we have not been that successful in plating it out. But we do know from just experience that, that having white mold at, say, the joints of the bale, or maybe you've got a, you did have a pinhole developed late in the process. And, that's not problematic, but you know, you've seen it and I have too. In some of these bales that really did fall out of shape, I mean, they just did not ferment. We can see some green mold and you can see other colors of mold. Uh, and there are some, and you can find tables of things that say a green mold is this toxin and, and a red mold is that toxin, but it's, it's not universally true. Uh, you can't really say, and uh, even though you can find it in the popular press, that you know red means dead, right? Uh, red, red and green means sure enough, it ain't good. That's for sure. Uh, but you know we're going to see some mold. The white is not problematic, and that's experience telling us that. But when you're seeing green and other colors and other other bio characteristics like a, a big black line around the the outside of it, then then you know that nothing good happened in that bale and that one's one to set aside that's that's really good uh, point you know we we also forget that when those bales are made say in may they set through the entire summer months and and those bales can get warm and there can be some moisture that will come out of the bale and hit that plastic and and rinse some of the acids away from the surface allowing other molds and that to begin to grow and it, it doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with the process even. It just could be what happened post-wrapping that can lead to some of that. You know, and that does remind me to say that we really don't want to keep this over a second season. You know, you want to feed it that first winter. Uh, I've seen it, you know, two-year-old baleage, and I've seen good, and I've seen train wrecks. You know, that plastic may seem impermeable to air, and, you know, it's slowly permeable to air. 
So over time, some oxygen will leak in no matter how good you did it. So you want to you want to feed it that first season if you can. And and the UV um, light will begin to deteriorate those outer layers as well. So um, what it will increase the permeability of oxygen over time. Absolutely. Well, well, Jimmy, this has been great discussion. And, and maybe just to wrap things up, when we're thinking about trying to make bailage, give us a rundown of your recommendations, kind of a checklist to, to try to increase the odds and success of making good bailage. The, you know, the first thing uh, that we need to do is try to hit the right window of maturity. Uh, some forages are much more sensitive to that. Cereal rye, for example, we've got to be early with it. Uh, but you want to have enough fermentable sugar. You want to then wilt it uh, to about 50-50, you know. Uh, and typically in Kentucky, I think we've made the mis more mistakes on the dry side than the wet side. So, you know, typically we want to push that towards the 50% or 60% moisture. You know, bale up good, tight, dense, square, uh, you know, flat across the top bales that are going to be amenable to you know match matching size if we're going to do the inline thing uh bale up what you can wrap in a day wrap with six layers of plastic um if you're using an inline wrapper orient that wrapper such that it's going uphill uh and the bales uh, have to you know it has to push the the push the machine uphill so you get a little help with that uh, making the bales tight together then keep the holes uh, patched uh, then, you know, you should be good. It takes about six weeks for that to ensile. If you have to, if you have to get into it and feed it, it's not toxic, you know, in those first three or four weeks, but, you know, realize that you, you really don't want to introduce air into that, uh, that big inline tube. That's a great summary. And, and we're right at this cusp of folks probably thinking about begin laying down maybe some cereal grains and this would be timely information for them as they begin the harvest window here. So I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Henning, for joining us again today and uh, sharing all your information and, and wealth of knowledge on keys to making good fermented forages. Um, I think as we go through this year, uh, I hope that we'll continue to see improvements in, in these. And uh, for more information, I'd encourage um uh, producers to reach out to their county extension offices. I know you've worked with many of them and interpreted a lot of their um, kind of analysis that have come back. And And I believe, Dr. Henning, a lot of our extension offices have them, probably two-thirds or better, have the materials needed to go out and collect samples, right? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So they're going to have that forage probe and that drill, and, and they can even give you the lab names. And in some, some counties, they pay for all the analysis as well. So contact your county extension office, talk to your ag and natural resource agent there, and, and see uh, what needs to be done to get these samples on, on baleage uh, taken and then sent off to a lab. And then they can work with you in, in uh, interpreting those findings. So with that, I'm, I'm going to call this a wrap. Get the pun. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Well, thanks again, Dr. Henning, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Lim Cooler. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.